Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you come to a point in your life where the pursuits of your younger years no longer seem meaningful or satisfying? Well, maybe it's time for you to transition from the first half of your life to the second. My guest today has spent decades helping people, particularly men, make this passage. His name is James Hollis. He's a Jungian analyst and the author of over a dozen books. We begin a conversation with a brief overview of what it makes Jungian or depth psychology unique and how it helps individuals find meaning and deal with life's existential questions. Our discussion then explores the differences between the first and second halves of life and how the main question of the first is what is the world asking of me while the primary question of the second is what is my soul asking of me. Jim explains why you need to sort through the influence of your family and culture on who you've become and how the second half of life is about finding personal authority and sovereignty. We also discuss why the first half of life is always a gigantic unavoidable mistake and why that's perfectly okay. Jim explains what triggers the impetus to move from the first half to the second half of life, how it can happen at any age, how to make the transition from one phase to the other, and why the journey to the second can be terrifying because it lacks the structure of the first. Jim then describes the internal systems you can use for guidance and moving forward in the absence of external structure. He then gets into the importance of continuing to grow in your profession or marriage throughout your life. We discuss the particular reasons men can get stuck in the first half of life and how men are more free to tend to the needs of their souls these days, but can still feel adrift. And we enter a conversation on how you can know if you're on the right track in pursuing the task of the second half of life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash second half. All right, Jim Hollis, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you are a Jungian psychoanalyst, and you've written lots of books. And the one we're going to talk about today is Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, How to Finally Really Grow Up. Before we do that, let's give a little bit of background on Jungian psychology without getting too technical or theoretical about it. What were the big issues that Jung was trying to address with his framework of psychology? Well, I think the thing that distinguished Jung perhaps most of all was his emphasis on the human being as a meaning-seeking, meaning-creating individual. And more individuals suffer when they're disconnected from meaning in their life than any other single cause, more than all the environmental wounds that uh, life brings us. And uh, he frequently emphasized that we remember that the word psyche really means soul. And most modern psychology fractionates human beings into behaviors, which of course we are, cognitive processes, which we do every moment, and biological processes, because we do have bodies. And all of that is useful and helpful, but it still doesn't sum the whole person. And the whole person is at heart a mystery. And and there are so many autonomous processes in each of us that uh, are constantly, in some way, critiquing our lives. And the, and the real effort is to try to undertake a dialogue with those other elements that are making choices for us. And of course, you know, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious, so we can't say very much about it, and yet uh, so much of it keeps spilling into the world on a daily basis, harming our children, ourselves, or partners, or whomever. And and so it's, it's about a, a kind of accountability to one's own psychological reality and a responsibility for what spills into the world through us. And an effort to um, dialogue with with the uh, depths of the human soul and the psyche, and and also to recognize that if we're in a meaningful relationship to our own souls, then we can go through difficult times. We can suffer. We can experience conflict and defeat, and and still feel the rightness of our lives. 
But on the other hand, we can do all the right things as defined by our family of origin or our popular culture, and there's something empty and aching inside, and the internal satisfaction is registered symptomatically. So I could do all the right things, for example, and feel the emptiness of it or feel depressed or been self-medicating or whatever. So all of those are really reminders that we have to pay attention to something very deep within us that is our natural wisdom and is seeking to communicate with us and on a daily basis is critiquing things. And it might make sense once in a while to stop and pay attention to that. So I think this is this is useful. So it sounds like what Jungian or depth psychology, these are answering like existential questions about yes. life itself. Mm-hmm. So I think the example of depression is a great, good one to sort of differentiate the different types of psychology. You, you've been talking about that. So depression, we do know that there's a physiological aspect to it and you can use medicine to treat mm-hmm. it. There's also a cognitive aspect to it. So you can do things like cognitive behavioral therapy where you change the way you think about uh, an issue. So you're not thinking negatively all the time. But what you're saying, what, what depth psychology or Jungian psychology is doing is looking at depression from an existential point of view and saying, what's, maybe there's something more to that depression besides a, a cognitive or physiological thing. This is actually could be, you're just depressed because like you feel uh, existentially adrift and depth psychology mm-hmm. addresses that. Sure. One of the ways to look at this is to ask the question, why is it that I in my best lights am still experiencing a depression? Why has my psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support? And I'll use a personal example myself. When I was in my early to mid-30s, I had achieved all my goals. I'd done all the things that I felt I was supposed to do and had been them, you know, successful with them. And yet I felt this deep depression. And it's the the thing that sent me into my first hour of personal therapy. It didn't sound to me like I was beginning the second half of life, and it didn't feel like a great moment in my life. It felt rather like a defeat of some kind. And at the same time, it was the beginning of a different kind of journey and a different kind of question, because I, I think I, as most people, had sort of picked up from my culture what my task was, what the assignments were, how to win approval, a chase that elusive goddess success. And it had led me further and further for myself. And it was really the beginning of the second half of life kind of journey, which is quite a different journey than the first half of life. So the, the real question is, if, if my psyche is not thrilled with the executive functions coming down from the, uh, you know, the top floor, what, what, what might the psyche ask of me? And frankly, we will avoid that kind of question. We will tend to ramp up our previous efforts, and the depression will only get more more pronounced. We will. We, it's kind of like again digging yourself a hole and and realize, oh my goodness, I'm in a hole. But the tool you have in your hand is a shovel, so you work harder, and, and the hole gets deeper. And then you have to realize that this is not the way that I I have to begin to reframe this situation. What is my what is the soul asking of me? And I know soul is one of those words that can be sort of new agey or woo-woo, but uh, it's really a word that is trying to point to the essential mystery of the human personality. And it's, it's something profoundly elusive and yet omnipresent in our lives. And as a result, again, is our constant companion. And the only question is, what kind of relationship do we have with that companion? Is it hostile, estranged, repressed, or is it conversational? And that makes a huge difference in a person's life. 
So it sounds like if anyone's had that moment where they're lying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering, what am I doing with my life? They are, mm-hmm. they are doing depth. They're on the, the steps of depth psychology. Absolutely. They're asking the right question. Because, uh, you know, in the first half of life, one could say, and this is somewhat of an overgeneralization, but I think it's true. We all have to sort of address, what is the world asking of me? You know, what do my parents want? What do the school teachers want? What does the employer want? What does your partner want? I mean, what, what, is, the, what is the task that my environment is speaking to me? And, and we throw ourselves into it in good faith. And that's important. It helps build enough ego strength. And it builds enough uh, sort of maturation and hopefully personal accountability that allows us to ask those questions uh, later when, when the bottom seems to fall out. So you're right. It's, it's at three in the morning, the hour of the wolf, as it's called, that one often is, is stricken with the sense of futility or sense of emptiness or, or basic fear. And, and out of that can come a different life. It's not necessarily something we want to do. It's something that life is asking of us. So in my own case, I think I probably just worked harder to uh, avoid that encounter. So the depression had to intensify until it finally got my, my attention. So let's talk about the, these, this, uh, d- go into detail about the first half and second half of life. So you just mentioned first half of life. This is when we're building up. This is when we do the things we think we're supposed to be doing. Go to school, get a job, get married, have a family, buy a house, et cetera. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it's about ego building. I don't mean egotism. I mean building your sense of your conscious identity. You know, we have to leave our parents. We have to step into the world. We have to take on the tasks. And the person who doesn't do that, who is avoiding that, is going to pay the piper down the line sooner or later. But we have to step into the world. And, and, and it has been suggested by others that it's a kind of ego world axis. What is the world asking of me? And can I mobilize my resources, my, my sense of discipline, or my willingness to pay my dues legitimately in order to meet those tasks. And that's, that's part of growing up. And if a truck ran over us on our 25th or our 30th birthday, we could say, well, the person died young, but they, they sort of did what they were supposed to do. They, they entered the world. But then again, the autonomy of the psyche begins to manifest later. And we have to remember, first of all, we're living so much longer than any time in human history. And Jung asked the question, a very obvious question, if we have served our social function, perhaps reproduced the species, etc., why are we still here? <laughs> What's the task in the, in the rest of that journey? And that's a different kind of agenda. And then, then the axis of conversation in some way has to turn just from ego to world, but but ego to the self, uh, capital S, meaning that interior intelligence that is uh, seeking our developmental agendas, and, and to ask another kind of question, and what is wanting expression through me? That's quite different than what does the world want? And, and then the question is, all right, what is, it, what is it that my own soul is asking of me? And that can lead to some very difficult choices in life. It can lead to new directions in life. It, it can lead to the ending of something and the beginning of something else. And that, that in-between time is very difficult. One of the first books I wrote was called The Middle Passage because I realized that the folks I was seeing after I'd returned from training in Zurich had different presenting situations, different life histories, different sort of 
ways of seeing their lives. But one thing was in common, and that was their understanding of self and world. Their psychological roadmap, if you will, had played out. It was exhausted and, and wasn't working. And, and they, something better hadn't appeared on the, on the horizon. And so I thought, well, you know, that's what a passage is. A passage is, is where something dies and something else is wishing expression, but you're in that terrible in-between. And part of the task of, of therapy, certainly, is to hold together the fragments. In other words, you, you still go to your job. You still take care of your children. You still tend to the tasks of legitimate summons of the outer world. And at the same time say, but I also have to start turning within and saying, all right, what, what is calling me here? What is beckoning me? Or, or why, why this internal discord? And, and so the, the whole notion of, of, of a passage in the middle of our lives, we're, we're, we know something about the adolescent passage of leaving home and getting a big body and stepping into big roles, assuming I've left my parents and, and their mistakes behind. I, I, I'm only out there unconsciously repeating them or running from them or trying to fix them, but I'm never free of them. And again, that, that tends to dominate the first half of life chronologically. But then the second half is, is where I have to ask, all right, uh, wh- wh- where do I go now? Whither goest I? You know, and that can be a very humbling and frightening encounter, because for a while we don't know, and not everybody's in therapy, of course. And people may say, "Oh, well, well this this hasn't occurred to me," but it, it often does in ways of which they're unaware. And this is not necessarily to be tied to one's chronological age, for example. Sometimes it hits people full in the face when their marriage breaks up or when they are forcibly downsized at work or when they're aging and have to face an illness or they've lost a partner or forced to retire. And then you realize how much that other relationship or that job was carrying their sense of self for them. And, and now that that is no longer there to carry it for them on behalf of them, it, where does it go? It falls back into one's own psyche, either as a depression or as a kind of panic. So the, the passage occurs when it occurs. And I've, I've seen people go through it in their 60s and 70s, for example. Again, not, not tied chronologically, but it's whenever we are obliged to you know, take, take our life seriously in a new way and set off in a new direction. So I know that many of our listeners are in their 20s, so they're like in the middle of this first half of life. And something that I thought was very useful in your book is that you describe the influence that one's family, uh, peers, and culture have on you in this first half of life. And I guess this is what Jung would call complexes, right? Sure, sure. Complexes are not necessarily bad things. Complexes are uh, expressions of the fact that we have a history. So, for example, to choose the literal, Let's say when you start to cross a the street, there's a reflexive response in you that looks left and right. You might be thinking about something else, but you tend to do that. That's a protective complex. It's, it's designed by your history to be protective to you. We have other clusters of history. And think of complexes as clusters of our history. When triggered, they have the power to come up and take over the ego structure and enact their old program. That's why we have these repetitions in our lives. And so we, we think when we're young and setting, let's say if I'm a 21-year-old or 22-year-old, I've just graduated from college and so forth, and I'm setting off in my life and I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do, uh, I think, well, I've left that world behind. And, and yet, 
we we know upon visioning it later, we were either repeating those patterns or we were running from them. And whenever a person says, oh, I, I don't want to be like my mother or I don't want to repeat my father's life, you know, we're still living reactively rather than out of some some directive core. Or thirdly, we'll be out there trying to fix it somehow, trying to stay busy, trying to stay unconscious, self-medicating, whatever. Th- those are the kinds of recognitions that, that we have that, you know, in some way, we're, we're still in some way captive to whatever the messages are. Not, not to even forget for a moment the, the powers of popular culture to define what does it mean to be successful? What does success mean? Well, we have all kinds of definitions in our exterior environment, but what if they're not in accord with, you know, what if your idea of being successful is to make a lot of money? So go ahead and do that and see if that really works. Because we know tons of people who've made tons of money and and they're often very emptied souls or they're often people who are doing a lot of self-medicating or always wills the risk and always looking for some new distraction. So it's in those moments then you begin to realize, all right, <laughs> sooner or later. In other words, if I were 2021 20, listening to this, I would say, well, what do I do to avoid this? I don't know to tell you the truth. It's like go out, make your choices, live your life. But once in a while surface and say, you know, where am I really? What does this really feel like inside of me? What, what's going on here? Does this feel like it's really about me or is it about me still trying to prove something? And, you know, it, when you're young, you have to go out. And I've, I've said to people, you know, look, the first half of life, speaking very loosely, is pretty much a gigantic, unavoidable mistake. And they laugh because they think I'm making fun of it, but I, I'm not. It's like, go, go live your life, create a life, make mistakes, but then try to figure them out. And then realize, okay, life is to some degree experimentation. But then you realize, okay, I tried this job. I mean, many times people work very hard in school or to prepare for a certain profession or something. And I mean, I've worked with so many very unhappy lawyers, for example, or a number of frazzled doctors or a number of other people who worked hard to achieve a professional identity. And, and, and then in the end, they, they find themselves burnt out or they find themselves utterly bored with what they're doing. And it's not that they did something wrong. It's that they, they were serving an agenda that was not appropriate for the rest of their journey. And rather than see this as a huge disappointment and defeat, one, one has to say, all right, it, it, it is what it is. It was what it was. And now I have to figure out what the next journey is about. And that could be a, a tremendous opportunity for redefining oneself and for taking new directions. And, and the biggest project, frankly, of the second half of life is the recovery of personal authority. You know, we have it when we're children. It's called instinct. But we're tiny, dep- dependent, vulnerable, afraid, have to sort of fit into the circumstances of our family or the world around us. And, you know, we trade it away every day. And the second half of life is finding personal authority and, and living it. And, and personal authority means sorting through an extraordinary amount of traffic that flows through us at any given moment. I mean, it's busier in there than LAX at rush hour. And the question is, all right, where, where are those voices coming from? And which one's coming from, from my own soul? And, and which ones are coming from my family origin? Where, where is it coming from my popular culture? I mean, that's a sorting process that goes on the entire length of one's life. Because the day I don't pay attention to that, 
then there's a good chance that I'm on automatic pilot again, and I'm, I'm, I'm serving one of those inherited voices. And then secondly, having discerned something that really you feel is right for you, then have the courage to live it, and to live it over time with whatever costs come to you, because that's, that's how you get your life back again. I, I think the second half of life is sort of getting your life back again meaning taking some ownership of it and uh, achieving a greater sense of uh, personal sovereignty and, and personal integrity. Well, as you're describing, when you said that uh, the first half of life is, you can kind of sum it up as a unavoidable big mistake we all have to go through. I know uh, Jung was, you know, he, he uses, uses myth a lot. And it, when you talked about that, it reminded me of the Buddha, the story of the, like Siddhartha, where he had, yes. he had, he tried the life of gluttony and you know whatever and then that didn't yep, work sure. out and then he tried you know extreme asceticism that didn't work and then he finally reached enlightenment mm-hmm. sure and it's very interesting if i remember correctly he was living in this pleasure palace that his very indulgent parents created for him until he was 28 and one day he wandered out into the world for the first time and he saw what i think they call the four passing sights and he saw a beggar, and he realized for the first time there's want. He saw a, a person who was afflicted with pain, and he realized for the first time the body could be a source of suffering. He saw a um, wandering monk, and he realized for the first time there was a, potentially a life of the spirit in addition to that of the body. And he saw a corpse, and he realized for the first time that there's such a thing as mortality. And it absolutely overwhelmed his system, as as we know. And and then he wandered for seven days, seven years, rather, as you just mentioned, exploring all kinds of options until he reached some kind of enlightenment. And his basic enlightenment was, you know, the, the chief <laughs> cause of human suffering is the management system the ego has uh, achieved, maybe worked hard to achieve, but it's that that gets one in, into uh, trouble over and over and over. In Jung's memoir, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, he frequently says, in his own self-exploration of midlife. Well, here's another thing I didn't know about myself, and it felt like a defeat. Well, why would it feel like a defeat if you've learned something important about yourself? Well, it's because the ego's invested in its own fantasy of sovereignty. I know who I am. I have enough knowledge to make proper choices. I'm doing the right things. I'm a smart guy, etc., etc. And then, you know, <laughs> life shows up and, and uh, pokes a hole in that. And, and those humbling experiences are the ones where we, we most begin to learn and find different directions. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So you mentioned uh, this passage from the first half to second half. There's no chronological age to it. And, ex- and rather, it's usually an event that draws them to that passage. Mm-hmm. Does it have to be, there, does there have to be an event? Like you have to lose a job, you have to lose a loved one for that no. to happen? Okay. No, um, well, let me just mention, for example, in I think it was 1884, 85, Tolstoy published a novella called The Death of Ivan Illich. And that's a name in Russian that means something like John Johnson. So it was meant to be an everyman sort of story. And this is a guy who, it's worth your reading. It's a story of a guy who did all the right things. He went to the right school, lived in the right neighborhood, married the right person, espoused the right social and political values, was a, a lawyer and then became a judge and was rising the system and, and everything. And, and he was just following the script as faithfully as he could. And then one day there's a pain in his side that just doesn't go away. And to shorten the story, it basically he, he finds that he has a terminal uh, illness. 
And for the first time in his life, he begins to question things. So in, in that story, it's, it's an event. It's, it's a, um, an illness of substantial proportions. Sometimes for people, it's just a growing sense of the exhaustion of the game plan of the first half of life. You know, I mean, look, in, in fairness, we, we set off thinking we could do this particular job for 50 years. Well, <laughs> human psyche is, is mobile and, and fluid. And it, it very quickly, I think, wants to move on. It wants to, the human psyche wants two things. It wants a fuller expression of its own possibilities, and it wants self-healing. And to serve those functions, it's going to, again, withdraw approval and energy. It's very rare that you can find a person truly excited about his work after many years. And, and those who do are lucky they found a particular passion. Henry Moore, the sculptor, was still sculpting into the, his eighth decade, and he said, well, I just found a passion so great I couldn't chip it all away. And, and that's, that's wonderful. But we have to remember, passion comes from the Latin passio, that means to suffer. So he was saying, I'm right, this, this is something that I feel so deeply that it actually hurts to do it and hurts not to do it. But the experience of doing it is, is profoundly meaningful. You know, I spend my life with a hammer and chisel and <laughs> pounding stone. That's not an easy life, but it's, it's meaningful for me. And, and so underneath all of that is, is really the question, what is the psyche's opinion about this? And, and that's, that's what sooner or later has to knock on the door loudly enough, which is why typically we, we get these intimations all along the way. We even have them in the first half of life. But, but you know, we're so busy serving the external agendas and our, our goals and often le quite legitimately in doing that. But, but also, there's a certain kind of vested interest in not stopping very long to look. Satchel Page said once, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. Well, something is always gaining on us. And that's a certain kind of accountability to our own uh, deeper lives. One of the things when you describe the first half of life, one of the nice things about it is that there is a structure, there's a framework, like you know what to do, right? There are things you can do and you know that you are, mm -hmm. you are doing the thing you're supposed to do. The second half of life doesn't seem there's that, that same sort of structure. That's right. That's right. So how do you go about navigating that second half of life when you, you have no, you have no clue on what you're supposed to be doing? That's right. Yeah. And, and that's, that can be terrifying. It's also known as freedom. It's an opportunity for new exploration, new new trial and error. But also, I mean, I've had so many people say to me something like, well, I always want to do this or that. And there's always a but, you know, I, you know, I had to pay for this, had to, to go do that. I had the kids to deal with, this kind of thing. They're all good reasons. But in the end, they, they serve as excuses for not having been faithful to what was looking for expression through us. That's why I said the central question of the second half of life is not what does the world want, it's what does the soul want. And another way of looking at that is what is looking for expression in the world through me. That's not, that can be a career, for example, or a line of, of employment, but that's not, it's usually not that narrow. It's, it's like stepping into your own personhood. Because that's the person. This is not self-indulgence. This is serving yourself. There's a difference. That's the person you will share with your partner. That's the person you share with your, your children, your neighbors, your society. You know, this, uh, Jung, Jung said, you know, individuation, which he didn't mean 
narcissism or individualism. He said it, it's about serving what's wanting expression through you. And he says that that means at times withdrawing from the collective, which creates a kind of debt, he said. And that debt is paid for by returning a more evolved person to your relationships and to your society. And that's why, in a sense, it's the greatest gift to our society for you to become who you are. Again, not in service to narcissistic interests or self-absorption. It, it usually will call for sacrifice, courage, and uh, persistence over time. But that's, that's who you become, and, and that's something that's, frankly, rolling fewer, fewer problems into the next generation. Well, you mentioned you know freedom is terrifying. I think Eric Fromm he wrote that book, Escape uh-huh. from Freedom, right? When, whenever you actually have the chance to be free, I think a lot of people have that tendency to. Well, I'm going to go back to that first half of life structure because that's I'm comfortable with of that. Of course, yeah. So I mean, what, yeah, of course. So how do you manage that? Like, what when, when you deal with patients who you know they, they're asking those questions and they're they're on that that precipice, but then they they want to retreat. Like, how do you move forward? Well. There has to be, an, again, enough internal discord. People don't just come into my office because they were in the neighborhood, thought they'd talk to a total stranger. It's, there has to be some, some, some bug inside of them, some irritation in the membrane that's trying to become the pearl here. There, there, there has to be uh, some suffering of some kind. And, and then you have to say, all right, now let's pay attention to the systems that you do have, the systems we all learned necessarily to override. First of all is the feeling function. You say, well, everybody knows about their feelings, right? Well, stop and think for a moment. Feelings are not something we create. Feelings are autonomous, qualitative evaluations of how our life is going by the psyche. What we do from an ego standpoint is we pay no attention to them. We anesthetize them. We project them onto other people. Feelings are not not created by us. They, they occur. So you stop and pay attention. If you really at times stop and ask, but how do I really feel about this? And I have to say really, because you can't trust the first responses. They're going to be filtered through the complexes. They're going to be protective or avoidant or deflective. How do I, re- I mean, you sit with that. How do I really feel about that? And then you realize your feeling function draws you toward certain directions or courses in your life. You know, secondly is energy systems. We can mobilize our energy and we do and we have to, and that's fortunate. But if you keep expending energy in the wrong direction, it's going to lead to that boredom and then to burnout. You remember Joseph Campbell said, once you spend your life trying to climb the ladder and then you realize you placed your ladder against the wrong wall. Well, you spend a lot of energy going up the ladder, but you know, then, then you realize, oh, this is not where I was supposed to be going. So Energy systems ultimately are clues. When we're doing what's right for us, this, the energy systems are there. In other words, when, when I'm doing what is right for me, I, I am flooded with that supportive energy. And when I'm doing what's wrong, I, I, I have to be working against my own grain. My wife has been a painter, for example, and, and I've seen her lost, so to speak, in the canvas. And it's almost like she doesn't know where she is. And that's good because she's, she's in the grip of that energy and it can, carries her. Or there are times when I've been doing something like writing or, or working with someone. I have no sense of time because the energy is there. The flow is there. Thirdly, we have dreams. We average six dreams per night. 
which is a lot of activity. Nature doesn't waste energy. It's trying to communicate with us. And I know most people are going to say, well, I don't listen, pay attention to my dreams or I don't remember them. Well, if you pay attention, you'd be surprised. If we live to be 80 years old, six years of our lives, six years will be spent dreaming. That's an extraordinary amount of activity. And I'll guarantee you, over time, if a person really pays attention to dreams and, and is humble enough to, to be open to them, they, they offer critiques, they offer correctives, and I can be doing all the right things, and then my dream life is, is telling me the opposite, and, and then I'd better start paying attention to, to something else that I've, I've discarded up to that point. And then, of course, fourthly is that, that issue that we touched on before, and that's meaning. If what I'm doing is, is perhaps difficult, but I experience it as meaningful, you know, that's the payoff. I've often thought, you know, happiness is not the goal of life. We're, we're told that you're supposed to be happy. Well, who said you're supposed to be happy? You're here to be here as, as, a, as yourself, as, a, as authentic a person as you could be. And, and that sometimes is not going to fit into the world, or that's, that's not going to be pleasing to everybody, maybe not even pleasing to you. But it also feels right. It feels authentic. So that you're your identity, your standpoint, your, your activities, your investments, your choices are in some way experiences meaningful. In other words, I, I can't imagine anything more meaningful than sharing people's personal journeys in the way in which I'm privileged to do it as an analyst. I don't find it enjoyable. I, I find it painful. I find it the sort of thing that can wake me in the middle of the night uh, as, as I continue to process it. But I, I find it so meaningful that, that I, I'm privileged to do it. And the day that arrives when it's no longer meaningful, I'll, I'll do something else with my life. There's different aspects of your life that are going to be affected as you make that transition to the second half. One you talk mm-hmm. about in your book is your career. Um, some people, they reach their 50s towards the end of their career and they realize, I've been doing the wrong thing my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? How does someone deal with that? And how do they make that transition to have the courage to like do what the thing that their soul says they need to do? Well, again, I, I want to emphasize the first half of life isn't wrong. It's what seemed to be best at the time. So we need to uh, accept ourselves and forgive ourselves, perhaps. But but then the real question is what 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 is the path of growth for me? You know, uh, you said once we all walk in shoes too small for us, which is his way of saying we, we live cautious and timid lives and lives defined by our histories. Where is your developmental agenda? Where do you need to grow? What's going to be challenging to you? What's going to take you to a different place in your own psyche? That could be within the same work, let's say, but looked at or approached from a completely different angle. And sometimes it needs to go in an entirely different direction altogether. In my first of half of life, I was a college professor, and I enjoyed it very much. What was, what was still appealing to me was teaching. So I've continued teaching, but I left behind teaching 18-year-olds, and there wasn't anything wrong with being 18. It's just that there was a conversation that's possible at 40 to 70 or 80 that is not necessarily possible at 18. So I realized... I was spending my time teaching and conversing with people that was not necessarily appropriate for the second half of life, which is one of the reasons I made the transition to being a therapist. I still teach, I still write, and, and, and so forth, 
And at the same time, you know, it's, it's in a, a different kind of conversation. So sometimes it calls for a radical change. Sometimes it's simply adjustments within the system. We also have to raise that question, uh, which you may or may not want to talk about, but that is relationships. People often make commitments out of their particular psychology, let's say at 20 or 25. And then, of course, as they evolve and change, then then they'll ask themselves, why am I with this person or how well is this working out? And that can lead to some very painful conversations, as we all know. In the old days, I used to do a lot of couples work and um, the, the real question is, can a couple evolve in a direction that is mutually growing and developing? Because if it isn't, it's going to be miserable for both of them. And are both parties capable of that? Rather than serve a kind of fusion model, like, all right, you and I will just fuse and become a whole person. The model for the second half of life is kind of an open-ended structure, almost like a Japanese walk that you would cook in. You know, it's open-ended that supports the growth and development of both parties. And when that's there, it's terrific. It's wonderful. Everybody's uh, developmental process is served. Uh, and, and, and when one person is stuck and it blocks the other person, it can be very, very difficult, as we all know. So I know you've written about men before, specifically. And the way you describe the first half of life about ego building, it seems like men would be really into this sort of thing. Success, career, sure. family. Like, I mean, what, is, what does that first half of life look like for men and the people you've dealt with, the clients you've had? Well, you know, I've, I've focused primarily on the, well, let me just mention, when I first started my practice back in the 1970s, the ratio of clients that I saw was nine women to one man. Today, it's the reverse, nine men to, to one woman. And it's not because I advertise as such. It's, it's that's who's showing up. And I, I think it's indicative for men that more and more men realize, you know, we're in trouble. This is a, a species in trouble. And, and it's more acceptable today to, to, in some way, undertake that kind of inquiry with a therapist than it, than it seemed to be decades ago. But, but for men, that's right. Many men are stuck. And when you see a man still stuck in the second half of life with thinking it's about making more money or being, you know, having more ribbons on your chest or whatever it is, that's a person who's still caught in a delusion. And he's going to have some serious appointments with his own mortality and aging when the time comes. One of the ways I, I've put it when I've spoken with women's groups who have on occasion asked me to talk about, well, tell us about those crazy people called men. I say, try to imagine three things. First of all, cut away from your life your close friends. Women always have close friends with whom they can share their deepest concerns and desires and fears and what's going on in their marriage and their body and their children and so forth. Those people are gone. They're banished forever. Secondly, sever your connection to whatever is your source of guidance and insight within you. Call it your instinct or call it your intuition, whatever you call it. That, that's severed. And thirdly, your worth as a person will be defined by meeting external standards of productivity, productivity standards created by total strangers you'll never meet. And when women hear that, they're horrified. And I say, if you could imagine those three things. First of all, try to imagine how isolating that is. Try to imagine how lonely that is. Try to imagine how self-estranging that is. And that's the condition of most men. 
And invariably, their, their attitude softens, and most of them have said, uh, well, how can we help? And the answer is, they, they can't. It's, it's up to us as men to begin to challenge some of the things that we, we live with or some of our own attitudes. So, you know, in, in, in looking with men, I think when I, I wrote a book years ago called Under Saturn's Shadow, and, and it was a reference to the mythological history of fathers and sons in which the fathers were devouring the sons and the sons were trying to kill the father. It was all about competition and winners and losers. And there was nothing there about uh, support and love and cooperation and true mentoring. And so when I wrote that and put it out there, I was touched, astonished, humbled by the number of men who wrote from around the world, the Australian outback and, and, and <laughs> Japan and places like that, saying, I always thought there was something wrong with me, but, but in a sense, this helps me understand myself as a man. And I was just impressed again with the, the incredible loneliness of most men. Most men may have a, a drinking buddy or, or a tennis buddy or a bowling buddy or guy at work they will have lunch with or something like that. But by and large, men don't tend to risk true intimacy of, of sharing the experience that goes on within that sack of skin that they, they live. And so that isolation is, is pathologizing. It makes them too, de too dependent on sexuality for connection, for example on uh, food, on alcohol, and on, um, you know, external prizes like success and promotion and so forth that might actually be um, killing them rather than, than supporting them. So I know every person's second half of life is going to look different because, you know, every person's different and the soul, every person's soul is going to be asking something different from them. But for, like, for men generally, when you work with men, sort of what's like the tenor you know, sort of the mood or sort of the broad view of what that looks like for a man as they transition? Like, what does the second half look like or feel like for a man? Well, first of all, I think there are ideas out there. I mean, your program is one of those contributions that were not, not available, frankly, 50 years ago when I was in that transitional stage myself. I'm, uh, you know, in a month or so going to be 80, so I've been around a while. And by and large, for my father's era and my youth, you are defined by your roles. You know, as I said, the man is defined by how he meets standards of productivity in whatever field he winds up. And today, I think far more men are, are able to look at that and critique it and to say, okay, but that doesn't necessarily work for me. And, and I think that's, that's a, a certain kind of, this is not true for everyone by any means. Some men are so you know, conditioned by economic hardship or, or lack of, of cultural awareness, uh, no fault of their own, that, that this is not an option for them. And I, I grieve for those men. But I think for many men, there's a, a permission for self-examination and to perhaps, as Thoreau said, to march the tune of your own drummer, because, you know, that's why I find more men coming into therapy and more men in the audiences when I speak around the world here. So, I, I think a lot has changed. The sentence I most heard as a, as a child, basically, and many other people have heard, was, well, what will people think? Well, you know, it's still out there, and, and we should not ignore the impact of our decisions on people around us. That's not the point. But to say, is my life defined by fitting in? Does that mean I'm supposed to become a, a, a chameleon and fit in with the, my environmental demands all my life? When we're children, we're often forced to. 
but at some point, you know, you, you become a man by sort of figuring out, well, who are you and what do you really want with your life? And now how do I go about doing that? Respectfully to of the well-being of others, but, but you also have to serve that in a way that uh, may take you away from those uh, collective definitions that were so, so powerful. We realize, okay, you know, I'm, I'm here to serve my soul, not, not popular assumptions. And the power of those popular assumptions has so significantly waned. I think men are freer today, uh, by and large, but they're also adrift. Because for the average man, you know, he, he knows he doesn't fit in, but he tends to internalize that as a sense of failure or shame. And that's a common experience. Most men walk around feeling shame and then trying to hide it from everybody else. But in, in fact, it's, it's a time for tremendous opening of possibilities. And that includes the risk of sharing that with another man. I mean, every man has to say at some level, do I have a man friend with whom I can share what's really going on in my life, really going on, including the really difficult and painful parts? And if not, that, that's part of my accountability. That's something that I'm going to have to address and if I'm ever going to get a, a, a richer life. So this might be a first half of life question. So it might be the wrong question. But let's say you're, you're asking those questions, you're starting to grapple with those second half of life questions. How do you know if you're like on the right path? Well, what I was suggesting before is you don't know. And that's why I'm saying first half of life is often a big mistake, but it's unavoidable. I say that with no judgment whatsoever. I'm just saying, all right, you leave home, learn how to support yourself, form friendships and relationships. That's what you should be doing. That builds your sense of conscious self, creates ego strength. It creates a sense of accountability and relatedness. That's good. But is that the right path for you? Well, we're going to find that out. We don't know yet. And, and uh, that's why I said I, I had achieved all my goals by my 30s, and all I knew for a while as I began to feel the uh, sort of energy slip away from them, uh, all I knew to do is uh, ramp them up, and, you know, and that's when the depression hit. Now, I didn't know that the depression was my friend. That's kind of a peculiar sentence, but I didn't know that that was, again, my encounter with my own soul, my soul was speaking. I thought, well, like every, anybody, how quickly do I get rid of this? Rather than ask this very fundamental question, why has it come? What is it wanting from me? That's a different question. So the truth is you don't know. And even the second half of life, you don't know often. You have to explore. You have to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to try things. Because again, if it's right for you, your systems, as I mentioned, the feeling systems, the energy systems, the dreams, the sense of purpose and meaning, those things will support you. They'll rise to be there for you. Jung said once, we, we all have to find what supports us when nothing supports us. So sometimes you really have to have the courage or the desperation to set off on your own and say, this is what I'm going to risk and, and so forth. So when I traveled to uh, Switzerland for retraining at midlife, I mean, there was nothing in my environment that was supportive of that per se. It was, it was <laughs> prohibitive in terms of income and everything else, but I felt this is, this is something I have to do. If I don't do this, I die, so to speak. 
the body would continue, but something in the soul would die. And I, but did I know where it was going? No. I, did I plan to change my career? No. That's what was disclosed by being on the road. And, uh, you know, you have to be on the road, so to speak, to, to find out where your directions are. Right. We live life forward. Right? Kierkegaard says. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and as I said, forgive yourself for mistakes, because if you learn from it, there's no such thing as a mistake. You know, you say, what do I need to learn from that? Now, now I know that. That I'll factor into my decisions in the future. Well, Jim, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your book and your work? Well, I have a website, simply jameshollis.net, and certainly books are on Amazon and other places like that. So I, I hope those books, I've always thought of books as trying to share this kind of conversation with um, with people I haven't met out there. And so, uh, you know, I, I never wrote books to make money. You don't make a lot of money from this, but I, I certainly think of it as as serving that teaching vocation, which I've always experienced. And if people read it and find something of value there, then and I feel deeply grateful to be a part of that. Well, Jim, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome, sir. And good luck to you. My guest today was Dr. James Hollis. He's the author of the book, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, How to Finally Really Grow Up. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, jameshollis.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash second half, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AON Podcast. And I want to let you know that right now, we've got an enrollment going on for the Strenuous Life, strenuouslife.co. Talked about it. It's an online platform that we created to help you put your intentions into actions. We've done that by creating a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. We also have accountability for fitness, doing a good deed, thinking outside of yourself, and we provide weekly challenges that are going to push you outside of your comfort zone in different ways. So go check it out, strenuouslife.co. Hope to see you there. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AON Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout to get a free month trial of Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding all you to listen to the AOM Podcast. Put what you've heard into action. Thank you.